Welcome to After the Breach Podcast. We're your hosts, Jeff Friedman and Sarah Shimazu. Tonight, we're welcoming Dr. Jeff Ventry to the show. We'll be talking to him about the award-winning documentary, Blackfish, and its effects almost 10 years later. We'll also share the latest scoop on what's been happening with the whales in the Salish Sea since our last episode. Thanks for joining us for this episode of After the Breach Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Jeff. And Jeff. And Jeff. Welcome, Jeff. Um, I look forward to just having a nice time with you guys and talking whale stuff. How's yeah. it going? It's going well. It's going well. Thanks for joining us. We're really excited to to talk with you tonight. So, Jeff. I'm sorry, I sent Jeff a, a tweet tonight because I wanted him to see my Orca Tilica motorcycle that I've been driving around the Pacific Northwest, and I actually have Tilikum's eye patch on it, and I, I love pulling it up alongside rivers and talking about dams in my tweets, and um, anyway, I thought you guys would appreciate that, because it is an actual replica of Tilikum's eye patch, and it gets looks everywhere I go, so um, I guess one type, one form of passive activism, so to speak. I love it. That is awesome, and if it's cool with you, I'd love to post a, a photo of of your Tilikum bike in the uh, in the in our show notes. It is uh, it looks really cool. I would love, yeah, I would love to do that. And um, it gets honks and and people coming out to talk about it. So it's a, it's a nice entry point for the conversation about orcas and also uh, salmon. That that is awesome, and yeah, I'm sure it's a great. Great conversation starter, and I I do want to get I, I want to talk a bit uh, about uh, the blackfish effect and and what's happening almost ten years after the film. Uh, I did rewatch it again this week. I, I think I've seen it a few dozen times, and it's amazing that it it never fails to to have the same emotional impact. Uh, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, you you were one of the former trainers that that came forward and and was featured in the in the film, and uh, had experienced what uh, what it was like to be an animal trainer and an orca trainer for captive orcas. Can you talk a little bit about how the the origins of, of Blackfish, how it got started, how you got in, involved in the film? Sure, if you want to take it all the way back, and I'm happy to do that because of the intelligent audience i'm sure that you guys draw with this type of podcast from san juan island um my involvement with blackfish actually began with uh, dr astrid van ginniken and ken balcom's invitation to come out and participate in or- orca survey back in 1995 while i was still uh, a senior trainer at SeaWorld. um that the acceptance of that invitation as it turned out uh, actually contributing contributed to my demise at SeaWorld. But um, seeing the killer whales, as I said in the movie, swimming in straight lines um, had a huge impact on me, radically altered my view of what I was doing. And I later found out that not one staff level trainer at any of the SeaWorlds had actually seen a killer whale. And the only reason why Chuck Tompkins, the curator, and Thad Lucinic, the corporate VP, had seen them is because they actually came out with Bill Davis in, I think, 1993 to capture footage for the legend of shamu show that we were doing at SeaWorld in orlando and astrid of course had been following gudrun from the dolphinarium hardawike since 1988 and made like 17 to 20 trips to orlando she and i became friends um she mentions me in her book along with uh, ironically mark simmons and lindsey rubenkamp who are still in the industry but that started a friendship um and then fast forward um, I went back to professional school 
um, including medical school. And in 2006, when uh, Ken Peters was pulled down by Kasaka, I received a phone call from uh, ABC, I believe it was ABC News Nightline show. And they wanted me to appear on that show. And I was firmly in the midst of my third year of medical school. Um, and I declined. Um, come to find out, I think the same mechanism happened in 2006 as 2010. The news agencies were wanting comments from killer whale experts, ex-trainers, people at the Center for Whale Research. And I think that they passed the baton to me both times when Don was killed um, on in February of 2010. 10, uh, they, uh, a guy named uh, Gabe Ramirez, a producer at CNN, called Ken and Howard, I believe, at the Center for Well Research and asked for a comment. And Howie uh, passed the baton to me, so to speak. And so I was reached um, by Ken, Gabe Ramirez, who put me in contact with uh, the show producer for AC360. And I initially declined that opportunity again but only for a few hours because both uh, Chica and my sister and John Jett said, Hey man, you've been talking about this stuff for, you know, uh, a decade now. And, and it's time that you said something. So I went on the show. Um, I was living in new Orleans at the time when Don was killed, uh, doing a physical medicine, um, residency there. And, um, I got on the show and I talked about Tilcom. I expressed the fact that I hope, because there was talk of actually euthanizing him initially. So I addressed that and I addressed his temperament and, um, you know, said good things about him and other things about captivity itself. And that interview led to another appearance on CNN, this time with Wolf Blitzer a day or two later. And then Thursday of that same week, I was asked to get on the uh, CBS uh, morning show, and that interview is still online, um, archived at, on YouTube um, in 2000. It was probably February, close to the end of February 2010. CBS early show is what it was called. And, um, and that got the attention of Tim Zimmerman, um, the great journalist at Outside Magazine, who I believe he still writes for, but Tim's also written several books. And he and I kind of connected because we both like to sail. And um, he arranged, uh, he reached out to me right through the LSU. That's where I was a resident, LSU in New Orleans. He emailed me through the available state uh, um, website for uh, LSU Health Sciences Center. And I responded a little tentatively at first because I didn't know who I was talking to. And eventually we did an interview and he uh, talked to me and John Jett and we were featured as the kind of former trainer voices for um, uh, the piece that he wrote, Killer in the Pool, which was, uh, you know, a cover story for Outside Magazine in June of 2010. And uh, Gabriella Calperthwaite read that article and that is what, drew her to the story and then um tim and i formed a group called orca aware with the orca project yourself um you know howie a lot of other people uh ex-trainers jumped on board we had carol myself samantha berg you howard astrid initially um uh the orca project you know colleen gorman 
um, a lot of great people on there and we started communicating and um, Kim brought Gabriella into that mix and we had already decided to do a uh, Superpod 1 in in 2011 because there were several different storylines going on. David Kirby wanted to interview trainers for the book Death at SeaWorld. Um, A lot of the work that we had done with each other was at a distance and Carol, JJ, Samantha and I were great friends. We just kind of wanted to get together um, and see wild killer whales together. So we put together Superpod 1 in July of 2011 and Gabriella came with the documentary film crew and that's how Blackfish began. And uh, she got a lot of the interviews, about 75% of the film, I think was filmed on San Juan Island at various locations. And then, you know, about 25% of it was filmed either at Laurel Parquet or I think JJ was filmed at Stetson in uh, Deland, Florida. So my involvement, um, really began with the invitation from Astrid back in 1995 while I was still a killer whale trainer. And that connection to the Center for Whale Research is what pointed CNN to me the day that Don was killed. And then when I got on a couple international uh, news networks like CNN and CBS, um, that caught the attention of Tim. And then his great article caught the attention of Gabriella and the trainers had already organized. So Gabby just kind of stepped in and she did a masterful job with the film, but you know, the four of us mainly and Dino as well, five of us already had a great chemistry. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons why the film is so successful is that, you know, a lot of times we literally finish each other's sentences because we've known each other since, you know, the late eighties. That's that's, amazing. How how it started. Yeah. It's amazing that it goes that the, the Genesis goes that far back. And I, I do remember, yeah. and I'll post a link in the show notes to uh, Tim Zimmerman's article in Outside Magazine, Killer in the Pool. I remember that was a really powerful article. And I think yeah, all of this w- was just you know the perfect storm, the perfect coming together of this movement that, I mean, a- anti-captivity had been out there for a while, but w- wasn't really, I-, I wouldn't say it wasn't gaining traction, but all of these events we're starting to gain momentum and then, you know, Blackfish just went, you know, just floored it. And, and Gabby did an incredible job with, with the film when, uh, I mean, talk to us a little bit about when, when the film was being made, I mean, did you have any clue what impact this was, was going to have? I, I remember I, I came to Superpod two and Gabby was doing some follow-up interviews and, you know, my, my, thought was like, wow, I hope somebody sends me the link on YouTube so I can see this, this film. Yeah. Right. Um, so no, you never know as, uh, by the way, there's a great YouTube video that, um, if you, and I can send you the link if if you'd like, it's really Tim Zimmerman's toast at the Sundance film festival regarding blackfish. And in that toast, Gabby is there and all the cast is there and the executive producers are there. And he literally says in that toast, this was like night one or two that the executive producers had, had gotten us a, a house to stay, to meet, to, to meet at while we were at Sundance. And he literally thanked everybody and said, you know, we gave it a strong effort. We made the Sundance. The vast majority of, of documentaries don't, make any money and, and don't gain any traction. And we were 
ready to just say our goodbyes right there. Um, and then like the next day or the next two days, I don't know which day it was, what day two or day three, Magnolia bought the film and then CNN bought the film. And, um, you know, I, I've captured in one way or another, most of the media surrounding the film along those lines, whether it was interviews at Sundance, YouTube interviews, Gabby interviews, Manny interviews, and there a lot of them are on my YouTube channel, but they can be searched for. And, you know, the thing literally blew up and I think it had a great theatrical run. It actually did make some money, um, uh, at voice of the orcas, one of the blogs that I've right for I, I listed out all the uh, national you know all the cities that were that were showing the film at their theaters and what the dates were um and, but then it was i think it was the cnn double punched that really put it over the edge because i remember i was actually in uh now by the way most of us lost a lot of money participating just for the participation fee and the traveling and everything like that going to friday harbor this and that but we did get a couple of perks, and one of the perks that I got was a plane ride and a free stay at the Sheikh's Palace in Abu Dhabi in October of uh, 2013 because uh, basically Gabby dispersed the former trainers to different sites. For example, I, I got to go to Abu Dhabi in Italy, and Samantha went to South Korea, and Carol went here, and JJ went here, and blah, blah. And occasionally we'd all get to go to one together, like in Sarasota. I thought it was a great film festival. But anyway, I was in Abu Dhabi about, you know, 12-hour time zone difference or, or thereabout. And um, I was staying up all night because this thing was airing on CNN. And I, it was some crazy number. Like, I think they, the Nielsen ratings suggested that, you know, was it like 20 million people or something like that saw it um, that night? It was a, it was an unbelievable number accompanied by a tweet storm back in, with the trainers. People were asking questions. And, um, it, you know, it was before really the, corporate takeover of Twitter, so to speak, if that makes sense. It was still kind of really um, personable on Twitter. And, you know, there were all these bots and advertisements at that time. And I think, um, you know, that the, the impact that, that Twitter had and some of the um, <clears throat> uh, animal justice pieces that were put forward by NGOs and, and PETA and other things like that really just took off and kind of uh, the film became like uh, this rallying point or this rallying cry for the entire animal justice movement, which, as we all know, for the most part, remains fragmented and uh, in, in a lot of ways less effective than it could be due to lack of money, due to disagreements, due to different approaches for things. But at that, for that one couple of years, especially after the movie was released, it had a gigantic impact. And I was overwhelmed staying in like the Sheikh's Palace in Abu Dhabi. You know, um, you know, I got in trouble because I walked into the lobby with my flip flops on. I had no idea I was violating like the dress code and stuff like that. But, but you know, I, I, in in the in the lobby of the Sheikh's Palace, there was like there was like one rule when we we're in the in the, the palace. You couldn't go on the fourth floor because the the king of Morocco had that floor. You know, so you couldn't get off. But these rooms had butlers and so forth, and like you know, lazy rivers and. It was just insane. And then, and then getting the, I, I bet he could wear flip flops. Yeah, he can do whatever he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a really cool experience to have that. Uh, Cheeks and I rented a, a Dart 16 and went sailing around the Arabian Sea. And, and it was just a really good time for the movie because that was October. The movie had been at Sundance for 
11 months, uh, 10 months by that time, and, and had, you know, obviously had a theatrical run, most of it. It was still in theaters, I think, at that time, but mostly CNN, uh, you know, was, was not, I don't know if this has a negative connotation these days, a, a booster shot for the film and really took it over the top. And that became a model for other documentaries to try to emulate. And for the most part, uh, you know, other documentarians have, have not been able to replicate it because they're trying to create a formula out of what Blackfish was. And, and what I'm suggesting is that what Blackfish was actually goes back to Astrid Van Ginniken and Ken Balcom and, and the chemistry that, that the core trainers had in the film. And then, of course, Gabby bringing on, you know, composers and uh, artists like Jeff Beale to do the, the music for it and the way she edited it without using a talking head voiceover. It really literally had us finishing sentences together. And I think the three-year warm-up that we had uh, doing uh, interviews for for major networks, um, you know, it's like a, it's like it was like practice. You know, like you get asked questions so many times, you, you improve the way that you answer those questions. And I think that really the chemistry and the precision of our answers really were blended together expertly by Gabby, and and of course the it it showed off in the final product. It it really was such a powerful film, and I remember CNN kept airing it over and over. It was like every weekend yeah. Blackfish was on, and it it really added so much momentum <laughs> to the um, anti captivity movement for for killer whales. Um, when when you were back when you were a, a trainer, um, did you? I mean, did you have a sense before you saw killer whales in the wild? Was there some some event or events that that started getting you considering? Uh, whether whether they were okay in captivity or was it really the the catalyst was coming out to San Juan Island and seeing them in their their natural habitat? Well, no, because keep in mind that um, you know I, I don't know if you've read Astrid's book in Togetherness is Our Home, um, an orca's uh, journey through life. Um, that's a great book that she wrote um, in in Dutch and then it was translated in English. I have a copy here, but. So I had I had knew Astrid from nineteen like I started in nineteen eighty seven. Astrid's first visitation to Orlando was nineteen eighty eight, and so I spent my first year at Shamu Stadium, kind of as a you know a dumb rookie, so to speak. Um, but even from that early time, she was involved with the Center for Whale Research. So, and and they eventually banished her from from. Uh, you know, banished us from being able to talk to her. Of course, we would just take our conversations outside of Shamu Stadium or outside of the park. But I was able to see pictures, um, you know, like the uh, Southern Resident Inventories beginning then. And the information that I was literally being told to tell students for educational shows was completely, not completely, but uh, in many ways, largely, um, it was it was basically a captivity propaganda in terms of things like lifespan and, you know, the things we've been through a million times. I mean, SeaWorld drills teeth and calls it superior dental care, you know, and, and I'm seeing these pictures of all these straight dorsal fins from the Southern residents back then when, you know, they were 95 strong or thereabouts. Um, and, um, and then looking at whether it was Canduke or Kotar or, or Tilikum with this collapsed dorsal fins and broken teeth. I had, um, there was this cognitive dissonance thing going on with me for a long time, and I became vocal about it. 
Um, you know, like, you know, in terms of the propaganda that we were putting forth. And so um, I spent only about a year, one year uh, at Shamu Stadium. And then I was moved to Welland Dolphin, where I spent about four years working with belugas, uh, false killer whales, white-sided dolphins, a spinner dolphin named Stan. Um, um, I don't want to leave anybody out here. Uh, Terciops. Um, we had like 18 animals there and that was a lot of fun. And some of the smaller, uh, tooth whales, some of the smaller cetaceans didn't, didn't have the same, um, teeth problems and collapsed dorsal fins that the orcas did. So I think the impacts of captivity are much more shocking on the orcas for obvious reasons. They, they are physically deconditioned. Um, they break these beautifully conically shaped teeth on concrete and steel. And so I, then I got circulated around. I rose up to senior trainer and got brought over to Shamu Stadium for my last two years and, you know, reached the highest level. It was really Mark Simmons and myself for the last year, year and a half that were, you know, when, uh, for example, August Bush would come into the show, he or, he or I were doing the VIP segment. And, you know, and so having, uh, being the senior trainer and having access uh, to leading training sessions and setting up shows and, you know, seeing how the internal mechanism worked with food deprivation and stuff like that was a slap in the face after being there for several years. So you, I returned to the killer whale stadium and then, and then saw all these problems. Astrid and I had never lost touch the whole time. She was coming. Um, I think she came 17 or 18 times total. And I probably met with her most of those times. Um, she had an academic schedule. And I think spent most of her uh, summers, you know, traveling the world, visiting killer whales, whether it was down in, in uh, South America or at a captive park. And of course, she loved Goodrin and documented a lot of her life. And Goodrin was the the catalyst for her book, Together, This Is Our Home. And I think if you read that book, it kind of is like the, um, I don't know, in terms of animal orca behavior she has seen so much in the wild and in captivity through clear glass. She synthesizes the killer whale behavior probably better than anywhere else has ever been written. Um, she, I guess, was a co-PI for Orca Survey for many years. I don't know what her title is now because I know she stopped coming out as frequently, I think, when possibly when her mom, you know, became older. But um, she was, you know, one of these ladies, an MD, PhD, with a photographic memory and it just blew me away how her or, you know, or Ken or whoever, you know, that you were working with, you know, could recognize, and I'm sure Jeff, you're at this level and you, you see a whale from, you know, and you're just, you know, who it is immediately. Um, that, that kind of stuff was impressive to me. And, and, um, uh, you know, I, I am thankful for the contributions that, that those, you know, influencers made on my life because it changed my life. Well, and, and you've, you've changed other people's lives and certainly the lives of killer whales. Um, and we, we actually had somebody out on our whale watching tour today who he didn't mention blackfish, but clearly he had seen it because he, one of his questions was, is it really true that all male killer whales in captivity uh, have dorsal fin collapse? And he was curious how often we see it out in the wild. And we just, we don't. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, I actually say that in the film, 
and this can, I mean, people don't realize this, and even maybe Gabby doesn't realize it, but I was looking at that from the get-go, and I was seeing pictures of Bull Southern residents going back to 88 when I first started hanging out with Astrid. I never saw a collapsed killer whale, ever. Um, and every single male, whether I was looking at uh, a San Diego animal or a, a Texas animal or, you know, or, or the bulls that I worked with, Kotar, Duke, and Tillicum, they were, they were all collapsed. And, you know, now as a, as a medical doctor and someone that's investigated this and, you know, I've, JJ and myself and Ingrid have knocked around writing a paper on this, but she did that uh, killer whale uh, uh, dorsal fin abnormality paper that she wrote took and, and mischaracterized. But it's pretty clear to me um, that the primary effect, in addition to, by the way, I, put, I posted Astrid talking about why killer whale dorsal fins collapse online from Superpod 1. That's online. Um, my first experience with Orca survey is, is, is online as well. But um, I think it's uh, when you heat collagen, um, even just uh, one to two degrees centigrade, it, be, it becomes denatured. And, and this can be replicated in a laboratory. Um, and there's a lot of research on collagen because women use it to puff up their lips. And, you know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, I think probably the most predominant connective tissue in mammals. And so with just a little bit of heating, the there's the collagen molecule uh, goes through a process called fibrillogenesis and when you add a little bit of extra heat to that chemical reaction the uh, collagen fibrils actually are thinner and weaker and so that process on a macroscopic level i think is carried into the orca dorsal fin because in captivity for example tilicum lived in pools that were more shallower than his length um, the the B, C, and E pools, I think, were 18 feet deep, and Tilikum was over 20 feet long. Um, the only pool that was longer than, was deeper than he was long was the front pool, and he only got to come out there for safety reasons during shows. So he basically had calluses developing on the distal edge of his tail flukes um, just from dragging the bottom. Now, they did later on add that G-pool facility where they put the elevating floor after Don was killed. I think that might have been 20-something feet deep, but I'm not even sure if that one was longer. Well, and, and he, he was a huge killer whale. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, in terms of length, I mean, Lolita, though, is almost as long as he is, I believe. Was he 22? And isn't, isn't Lolita like 20 or something like that? I, don't, I can't remember right now. I think he was 22 feet long. And, um, but, you know, Lolita obviously is Southern residents are larger than the Icelandics, but, um, anyway, it's just, um, shameful. What a, a pathetic life. I, I said this, I believe in one interview, imagine if you were living a life where you could only like in Tilikum's case, take one or two, uh, strokes of your tail and you have to turn around because there just is no more room to go. And then your tail is for the most part dragging the bottom your entire life. And so that creates almost like a straight jacket effect. And when he's in larger pools, uh, like at G pool in Seattle, Florida, he just became a target for, you know, female aggression. And because these um, orcas, you know, have no real natal origin, they're all kind of hybrid animals, except Tina was an Icelandic. She's it's unbelievable. That she's still alive. But pretty much all of her prodigy, progeny were 
or, or hybrids. And so when SeaWorld talks about conservation, they're just making this propaganda up. There's nowhere for these whales to go. And mo- most of the whales are combinations of Icelandics and, and Southern residents or, or Icelandics and um, transients. That's what um, uh, Goodwin uh, and uh, uh, Taima was a, a Kanduk uh, Goodwin prodigy. So she was a half transient, half half Icelandic. And so these these animals have nowhere to go, even if you know if you, they, even if they were ever to talk about one day repopulating wild populations. It's just pure nonsense. So these are the things when I was working there, uh, especially in the very the very last year and a half when I was intently working with the killer whales that really got me, you know, flipped me into a different mindset. And then of course, traveling out with Ken and Astrid, it was June of 1996 that I spent on the water, um, a couple of weeks on the water with those guys living in at the center for whale research and, you know, on the high spirits. And, and I was hanging out with Kelly a lot too. He had, a, there was another a power boat that we went on and we dropped hydrophones in the water and, uh, I tried to document that with one of those old um, high eight players, and I can you know later digitize it. But um, it was it was a remarkable time, and just the the islands itself where you guys are at is so remarkably beautiful. And and um, you know we saw a, a lot of different whales, minke whales, uh, harbor seals, uh, uh, transients, uh, resonance, a lot tons of bald eagles, and it was just a one of those kind of magical um, you know catalysts of change. Uh, periods of my life and um, I was also back in school and, and that also was the beginning of my march back into academia and, and trying to you know get into professional school so it was a transitional time for me and, and a time that seemed a lot simpler uh, and then the times are these days but um yeah uh, you guys live in a special place it, it is re- remarkable here and uh, we've got to get you back here to get you back out on the water uh, one, one of the things that you just said about all the different whales and where they came from and the hybrids, um, it, one, of, one of the most powerful lines in the movie to me, is, and you said it, is uh, talking about how you know, these whales living in, in these confined spaces together, these are different nations. And uh, it's, it's a really, yes. it, it, for those people who are listening who have not seen it, we are going to post links in the show notes. So if you have not seen Blackfish or it's been a long time, definitely check it out again. Um, Jeff, it's, it's been inc- incredibly powerful in its impact. Where, where is anti-captivity today? What, what, what's going on out there? What can people get involved in? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it's really, I think Blackfish was like, a battle that, that the little guy won. And I think that it's having, it's had a great impact in, in at least in California and, and Canada and, and France. And, and, and that, that good common sense codifying some of the anti-captivity laws and anti-capture um, and, and breeding laws is, is, is sprung out of blackfish. And so that's been very rewarding. What, is more concerning though is you know um is the stuff that's happening in in, in china mainly and, and the Mid- middle east as well where there's just this grind to create you know what what is a long gone wild was kind of like a uh, a sequel to blackfish in certain ways and talked about the great impact that it had but 
we're we're winning the battle at home, but you know, abroad it's it's still expanding. Um, I think what did uh, what did they say in the film? There was like over a hundred SeaWorlds in China or parks that are looking to fill their pools with killer whales, and that's going to have a gigantic impact on uh, whales in the Far East and, and that part of the world. So I would say it's a mixed uh, a mixed ending at this point. Uh, we've seen some great success. Uh, great awareness, at least in the first world and in, in Europe, and I'm, I should say first world in in Western countries. Um, and um, you know, we'll see how it goes in in other parts of the world. I just there's a lot of other um, I think large ecological concerns that I have. One of them is just the expanse of human population and industry, and how that's affecting river systems and changing the chemistry of the ocean and stuff like that. Where you know we're losing you know, coral reefs and, and phytoplankton and other food chain sources. And so these bigger fights, I think it would be great if, you know, everyone got involved with because um, they're, they're serious. And if we lose, if we lose the biosphere or, or, or put a serious dent in it, we're going to, there's not going to be a fight left to have, if that makes sense. So from the perspective of Blackfish, I would say it was a, a great success. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done and hopefully we can tweak our system to where it's not, you know, based on consumption. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, uh, and I agree. I think, I do think blackfish was, was an incredible success. And, um, that, that led me to, uh, you know, I, that's how I bet you was through your work in, in that. And yeah. you, you and I have shared some yeah. time on the, on the water, uh, watching ki- killer whales and, and, uh, checking out the humpbacks in the Dominican Republic, um, one one of the lines in the in the yeah, movie, no, for sure. oh that was that was incredible. One of one of the lines you you mentioned in in the film, and you mentioned it here on the podcast, is, is seeing killer whales swimming in in straight lines, and I think it is it 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 is blatantly obvious when and I we see it in, with our passengers when they see how they're living yeah. in the wild. It, it really hits home how you cannot provide an artificial environment and and give them what they need and what they want in in the wild. You can't do that in, in captivity. Um, we always ask everybody that comes on uh, to share some of their most memorable experiences on the water um, with with killer whales or any other whales. Would, would and from your unique perspective, would would love to hear about. You know, one one or two um, really memorable experiences that you've had out out on the water. Yeah, well, I think one of them is I think I had a high camera when I was with uh, Astrid and Kelly in nineteen ninety six. nineteen ninety six, and I I think it was I think I it was was it K K one I think I saw uh, uh, no it was it was J one and J two um, uh, I saw on the on the water and it just it just blew me away. Um, it, it, I think JJ told me he had the exact same experience. You kind of tear up because you simultaneously, when you see what this is, you're not only inspired by it, but then it also contrasts the last several, last eight years of my life. You know, it's like, oh my God, what you come to this. That's what I mean by radically altering your perspective or, or my perspective. And 
that it, it, it forever changed me. It, it rocked my world. I got to spend two weeks um, out there with those guys. We saw whales pretty much every day. And I came out of that, you know, uh, I would say a ra- at least philosophically a radically altered person. And um, I took that with me. And this folds back to the very first question because Howie and Ken knew that, which is why they first pointed ABC Nightline to me in 2006 and then uh, CNN to me in 2010. And that cycle is what created the opportunity for Blackfish to be made. So um, it changed me as a person. And then um, I feel like, um, you know, the participation and, and the, the work that we put in, um, which has been a lot, uh, it was thousands of hours and still happening. I mean, between the scientific works and the, death at sea world and, and stuff like that and just doing research it's 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 never ending um, we still are working hard but um you know it 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 was a it was a game changer for me and, and in turn gabriella was able to take various folks and experiences and and you know like john crow think about the testimony that he gave he had given that same speech uh not speech his same rec- recollections to Ken and others at like a whale conference, uh, you know, when, what is it? The conference that Howie does or um, once a year. I, I oh, the way of the whales. Of it, I but I, yeah, I, I think he, he was filmed, you know, giving that same story about catch, you know, the whale collections online, prior, a, a kind of a different, a different variation of that story. But um, Gabby went out and found him and that was a, he was one of the stars of the show, you know, Howard Howard did an amazing job talking about the collections and and the synthesizing that she did um, with the former trainers and then combining them with with experts and and eyewitness accounts of like Silicon's time and Victoria was just remarkable and it's like you said earlier Jeff the um, it was a, a combination of the right people getting together and like a perfect storm kind of creating this blackfish effect and um, and that's a that's that's a term that I came up with when I saw the exponent like when they released the trailer for Blackfish. I was literally online that day, and I think I was in the top fifty people to see like the YouTube like re- release of the first Magnolia when they released the trailer. And I watched it, and it was like I don't know. I thought maybe I was number forty or something that saw the thing, and then I just wanted to watch it again, like right when it was done like three minutes later and then it was like ten thousand, and oh, then wow. i hit it again and it was like you know fifty thousand, you know and it, it is it just was increasing exponentially and so that's where i came up with the term the blackfish effect because i i described it to in an email as like the exponential uh growth in knowledge that that the that the film seemed that seems to still have you know, obviously that curve is plat- plateaued off, but there was there was a time where it just was like asymptotically shooting up to infinity, and like just more and more people watched it, the, that trailer, and well, then and then the word got spread. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the film changed the the entire conversation, and I, I love that uh, from yeah. your from your uh, from your encounters in in the wild that uh, the iconic Southern residents J one and J two had a role in all of this. Yeah. Yeah, they certainly did. And I believe I have to check. I think it was J1 and J2. And I think uh, I had Astrid explain 
um, how um, uh, Mike Biggs, um, you know, captured K1 and carved the triangle out of his fin and then re released him and then proved that the markings of the dorsal fin would remain for life. And, and that was the basis for Orca survey. And um, I, I got her on camp, you know, holding a crappy little camera, describing the whole basis for the, the study. And then, like, there goes day one and day two. But what the, <laughs> the hell is going on here? And um, anyway, it was just really remarkable. And um, it was just the, the first day or the second day of, of a couple weeks of, of stuff like that happening. Stuff that you probably see on a daily basis. Um, but for me, as, a, as a, a, a former guy that worked with incarcerated whales, it was something else. Well, I, I when I was rewatching the film, it's... It, I'll tell you an example of how powerful the film is, is, you know, I was watching, there was a scene and it, it may have, I think it may have been Northern residents, uh, a big, big group of them swimming and there's beautiful music playing in the background and how he's describing, uh, what orca culture is like. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm starting to cry and, and I'm like thinking to myself, like I'm tearing up and this is what I get to see every day when I'm out on the water like I'm not, I'm not seeing anything any different, yeah. but it's the film was so powerful that it made me cry with things that I see out there on a, a regular basis. It's just incredible, and we we will post links to the film in the in the show notes, and and uh, we really appreciate you joining us, Jeff. Yeah, it's been yeah, great having you. Yeah, thank you, thank you both. You know, I've, I I've had probably literally hundreds of you know people that just sent us. They made me cry, and it makes me cry still. Too. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Jeff. Thank, thank you. And uh, you know, you got an open invitation on our boat to come out and 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 see more more whales in the wild. And and uh, I think since uh, the last time you've been out here, I mean, it, it, our humpback comeback, which we talked about on our last episode, is has really just continues to explode. So we got yeah, to get you after some humpbacks maybe, too. Did you did you tweet about that too? Did you send out a tweet on that? I I, I did. I, I, I did. I, I don't know if it was a yeah. I, I retweeted that, and I also saw that podcast, and I've also was there with Goody. Um, I think when you were there, uh, one year we we saw a humpback. Um, I think we were on Western Prince. I can't remember what boat we were on, but um we were looking for orcas that day and there was just a couple of humpbacks that were out there it was really cool and that of course links up to the two trips that you and i have taken in, in uh, at the silver bank and and those are two pivotal trips as well yeah those were um, those were incredible trips well. yeah i really appreciate you guys thanks so much for having me on i'm, I'm honored to be on your show and and um uh, you know working hard to get the word out there and i hope to see you guys soon yeah, th thanks so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it, and uh, have have a great night. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It was great talking to Jeff. It, it I haven't spoken with him in a while, and it was great having him on the, on the show. And uh, I'm going to grab as many of those videos from him, links, and and put them in the show notes. But what uh, what an interesting experience, and and interesting guy, and and all all the hard work that he's done. Um, and with a lot of others to create this uh, in, in, pivotal film. Yeah, and I mean, I think we both know like how impactful and powerful we we felt the the documentary was like when it first aired. 
Um, and we've seen firsthand, you know, in the first couple of years after the documentary aired, just how how much um, impact it had on people around the world uh, that came out here for, you know, Superpod and, and that kind of thing. And um, and still to this day, how many people on our tours reference Blackfish and how they may have been to a marine park or SeaWorld or, or any of them and seen killer whales in captivity and then to see them out in the wild is just like, you know, I, apples and oranges, right? Like they're, it's, it's totally different. They, I've seen it in their faces. Like it dawns on them. Like you can see the, the just like, I don't know how to explain it. Like just, just that understanding kind of come over them, like how different it is and how much we, there's, there's no possible way we can meet their, their needs in a captive environment. And, and it's, it's an emotional experience for a lot of people. And, and this just popped into my, into my mind. And, and I, I wish that uh, we still had Jeff on, on uh, the line to talk about this, but I think because of the film, a lot of people that do come out on our whale watching tours, we, we have in many ways a more educated uh, uh, guest on board who has seen the film and they want to see them in the wild and they understand, whereas maybe prior to the film, which was before my time out here, uh, you may have had a lot of people that didn't really get the difference between captive, seeing captive orcas and seeing killer whales in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for sure. I think, um, you know, there's still, I still hear it sometimes when I'm sitting on shore or, or even on the boat, but, um, it's decreased a lot less where people are like, Oh, it's like Shamu or, Oh, they're putting on a show for us. Like, you know, they're, they're more cognizant of the fact that these animals are, um, their own like unique independent beings. They're not here for us. They're, you know, we're not here to use them. They're not here for our, our purpose. Like we are privileged to get to share this, this place with them. And, and I, um, have noticed like hopefully that that's kind of decreasing and and um, more people are are aware that you know we're just we're just out here visiting them in their home and I think you said that on the water today you're like we're we're the aliens here like we are this here is theirs. visiting yeah this, this is, is this their is place their, this is their channel this is their harbor it's we're been just, we're their just place longer than we've been here so absolutely um, we're the guests here and and we need to act act as such right. And I'll go into a little detail on that and we'll go right into our recent sightings because we've got so much cool stuff that's been going on here since our last episode. But today we were in this very narrow channel with uh, two 15-year-old Biggs killer whales, uh, not brothers, but really tight friends um, coming from two families that are really tight friends. So it was T49A2 and T65A3. And they're in this narrow channel, and it's their channel. And they are in the middle of the channel fighting against a really strong current because we had a big, big tidal swing today. And they're hunting a seal. And I, I'm having, you know, I, I'm having a, a challenging time just keeping, keeping view of them through the current. And there are, at one point, there were three large ferries going through the channel at the same time in, in, you know, two going in one direction, one coming in the other direction. And then you, we know there's some more around the corner that are coming around. And one of the ferries was sideways, right? Because of the current <laughs> and we're the visitors there. And, and 
the only ones who altered any behavior were the ferries and the whale watching boats and the whales didn't change a beat. It's their world and they're just hunting their seal. And you know, the ferry comes by and it's close and the whales just dive and they take the seal under. And, and I mean, it was just, it was absolutely an incredible experience to, you really get these, when we're out on the water, we're in their world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes like, We'll see it where like a big ship will come through and they'll either like deviate to ride the bow wake or the stern wake, or they'll take maybe a slightly longer dive if they're doing something else. Uh, these boys today, they did not alter a thing. Nope. Like they came up next to the ferry at one point. I was, it was crazy how close they were. I was pretty sure that the people standing on the top deck of the ferry couldn't even see them. They were that close. So, um, and they didn't miss a beat. The, didn't miss the a hunt. Beat. The hunt continued. Yeah. So much blood on that one seal predation. Um, and we, we've had, they, so these two males have been together, I think for about, about uh, a week, about a week. Um, prior to that, I don't know where T49A2 was, but T65A3 was, was with his mom and, and siblings. And every trip that I've done with them over the last few days, all they're doing is hunting. It is, it is incredible. And it's, it is wonderful to see, uh, killer whales that just have so much, food availability that every trip you're seeing them what are they doing they're they're two 15 year old boys what are they doing they're eating well th all the trips i've had with them recently they've been sleeping so we need to split this up again <laughs> but i mean still 15 year old boys eating or sleeping right it's, it sounds pretty that sounds about right standard um we've also had um a a new bigs killer whale mm -hmm. for you and i both and for many people in this area um, T72, who um, you can talk a little bit about uh, his his background, where he's mostly seen, but for pretty much, I mean, most of the people that work out here, um, many of us have never seen him before, and he was here uh, around July 4th for a few days, traveling with the uh, T34s and 37s. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that it comes up on this episode when we interviewed Jeff and talking about dorsal fin collapse because he, you know, doesn't have a full dorsal fin collapse, but the top of his fin He's got a curl. is curled over quite significantly. Um, you know, he, he has some nicks in his fin. He's probably had some injuries there, and, um, you know, it happens. We have a couple that have, like, not, not a full collapse, but... Um, definitely some lean or some curl to it. He kind of reminds me of a, a whale we used to have around here that's passed away, but T40 Captain Hook. And I've seen a few people like on social media referring to T72 and like being like, oh, Captain Hook. Like, no, 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 he's not Captain Hook. But um, he he's uh, nickname is Young, uh, but he's pretty cool. Born, we think, around 1974. So not young. Not uh, young. His name is young. <laughs> Not young, but his name is young. And I think prior to this uh, visit, he's only been seen here w one other time, in, in my memory at least. Uh, was it 2017? 2017 in, in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And I, I don't think it was for very long, maybe a day or two. What was interesting, so he spends a lot of time up in northern BC and, and southeast Alaska. And after our encounter with him, and we'll post a photo so you can see that uh the very top of his dorsal fin is, has a, a curl over to it. Um, but I was looking at the distribution maps of, of documented sightings of T-72 and also of the T-34s 
and and 37s and there there's quite a bit of overlap up mm-hmm. north and so i i am sure that they know each other from up in in southeast alaska and possibly he just came down with them this time and said fine let, let me go check out this place you talk about that you go in the summer <laughs> Yeah, and and the distribution maps um, that Jeff mentioned uh, is, is from a, an ID catalog. And Tasley last episode mentioned Jared Towers and and um, Gary Sutton as two of you know the folks that she works with closely. Uh, Gary's her partner, um, and that is a catalog that Jared and Gary work a lot on. And there's other collaborators as well, I believe. Um, but we'll post a link to that. So if you wanted to look at that, I think it's available online in PDF form. Um, but it's a really cool resource that they've put a huge amount of time and effort into. And, um, you know, the the Biggs population is growing so fast. Like it, it was released in 2019 and I think it was outdated the, the week after that. There was like a new calf to add to it. But um, it's a huge, amazing resource. And so you can see those those maps. Also in our, our recent sightings, I... I think we should mention um so the t65a's and that's the family um that one of the male the 15 year old boys comes from um he's t65a3 the t65a's are um quite a social family around here and it seems like every summer they are hanging out with another family um like inseparable all summer long uh, they take them down into Puget Sound. They take them down all the way down to Olympia, into Hood Canal. And a few years ago, the family that they would hang out with was the T49As. And I think that is possibly where 49A2 and 65A3 formed their, the basis of their, or the foundation of their, their friendship. Um, but one, one year it was the, the T137s. They were they were the cool family that for the summer hanging out with the sixty five A's and now it's the T seventy sevens. They're the the flavor of the year. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that though, because I was looking through some old photos um, from twenty fourteen, most recently, and I have some from even earlier than that um, of encounters I had with the T sixty five A's. And guess who's in there with them? T seventy seven and her kids. So um, not all of them, right? But they associate a bit and have for years. It's it's their social interactions and relationships are. It just it's nonstop fascinating. Yeah, it makes me wish I could interview them, but um, would you know. love to have them. On the, <laughs> uh, maybe maybe next week our guest will be uh, the T sixty five A's. Yeah. That would be awesome. <laughs> But, um, yeah, no, it's been really cool watching uh, that. And T65A5 um, was the, you know, eight-year-old that was kind of like taken, I, I don't, he wasn't, maybe was stuck, but not really stuck in the lagoon in Port Angeles Harbor. Um, we talked about you that know, over, last episode. Over a month yeah. ago, I think that was maybe an episode two, one or two. I don't, I don't remember. Time flies, right? Um, but he's been seen with T37A1 bouncing around from family to family. We had him with his aunt for a day or two. And T37A1, we talked about in, in an episode who was hanging out with T34A1. Right. And then dropped, apparently dropped her off with mom, T37A. Right. And then went to hang out with T65A5. Yep. And T34A1, we talked 
about her last episode with Tasley. Uh, she was seen with the T65Bs like the day we recorded the episode with Tasley. Right. And um, I think was seen either the next day or maybe we had talked to Tasley and, and it had been the day before. And then that day that we recorded, she had also been seen with the T65Bs. So she was with them for at least a couple of days. But then we saw the 65Bs. Not uh, long after. Not long after with the T123s, and and 34A1 was not there and have not heard from since. So No. So who knows who, who she's knows? with? She's probably with T65A5. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's been seen with T37A1 since then. So I don't know. Maybe she went up to Alaska. Who who knows, but hopefully we'll find out um, on the, before the next podcast. But we have also had um, what would be rare in the last few years. We've had Southern Resident Killer Whale sightings in, in July. And June. And June. Um, and you, you spent uh, a good amount of time uh, watching them on the west side. I had a, a really nice experience watching them. Uh, we were quite distant from them uh last evening uh we were about uh a little over half a mile away but beautiful conditions and glassy water and pre-sunset lighting and we were just watching them in the distance motors were shut off you could hear their exhales it was it was incredible and you you've seen them from the west side of san juan island uh quite a bit in the last Mm -hmm. week or so um what are what are what are some interesting notes i know we have uh you know I think I'm I'm checking my emotions on this and and being very very cautious about uh, first calf in K pod in what is it eleven years eleven years yeah so um, you know in May um, a, a boater off the coast of Oregon got video of whales that we identified as members of K pod and and there appeared to be a young calf in in the mix and it was pretty grainy video but uh, amazing. And we all were like, oh, gosh, there could be a, a new calf in K-Pod. And it, it would have been, you know, 11 years since we had, K-44 had, had been born. Um, and got another video uh, a few weeks later. Again, there was a, you know, it looked like there was a small whale in there. Um, and they did return, you know, a few days ago. Um, and and uh, it looks like K-20 uh, has given birth to a calf. So first surviving calf born uh, into the pod since K44 joined in 2011. So this calf will be designated K45. And, you know, uh, it's it's been a, a roller coaster of a ride for me with the Southern residents since, you know, I first started coming up here in the early 90s. Um, you know, we always get so excited about all the new babies. And, and I, you know, I always feel that excitement when, you know, we see a new calf and a video of a new calf or photos of a new calf or, or what have you. Um, and I, I try to live in that excitement. And as I'm trying also to like guard myself, right, because the first year after a calf is born, one, it's a critical period for that calf, but it's a really critical period of time for the mom as well. And, uh, she needs a lot of extra calories. She needs a lot of extra, um, you know, food basically like we're, we're you know, we, we need to get these whales more to eat. Um, and so it's, it's really, really critical for, for moms. Like there's just so much, um, you know, potential for, I don't want to say it to go wrong, but, um, you know, we just want to be, you know, 
celebrating, but also using this as like impetus to continue to fight for more salmon for these whales. Yeah. And I, I think one of the, one of the challenges for me, and I, I was saying, I'm, you know, being emotionally cautious is we don't see K-pod very much. So they go, they go dark for long periods of time. And so I know there's going to be a long period where we're not going to know what's going on. Um, that makes it a little, little bit more difficult. There, there was some good news coming out of Washington DC today, uh, regarding the snake river dams and the federal government is starting to weigh in on, I mean, they've been largely ignoring the issue. Um, and the, for, for, for those who are, are not as familiar, uh, the snake river is one of the tributaries of the Columbia river and had been historically the largest Chinook salmon producing tributary of the Columbia river system. Um, until there were four dams put in there, I think it was in the 1950s and, uh, salmon, the Chinook salmon production on the Columbia river has been in decline ever since the dams went up in spite of, uh, spending money to the tune of $24 billion to increase for salmon recovery on the snake river, $24 billion that has had no impact. And so there is a similar to, to blackfish. There is a growing, has been a growing movement uh, to remove the snake river dams and replace whatever energy they produce with, with other forms of, uh, with some green energy. And, uh, I, I kind of equate the two things of, you know, what, what is the big catalyst going to be for the snake river that, that finally pushes that needle over the top, like blackfish did, at least in, in Western countries, uh, regarding captivity. Um, but at least the, the, the federal government is starting to weigh in and, and they are starting to, I think there were two reports that came out that said that something to the extent that, that, uh, in order to enable salmon, real salmon recovery on, on the snake river, the, the dams need to come down. And right. Right. And also in the report, um, said that like the, the energy generated, which is surplus energy, from what I understand, like we have, you know, like a 16% surplus in energy. Um, and I think this lower Snake River dams account for a fraction of that um, can be recovered in other places. So it's not like we're, we're losing that that percentage of a, of a surplus. But, um, you know, there, and there are other things, right? There's, there's shipping and that kind of thing that need to be taken into account. But um, it, I think it's great news that, you know, NOAA on a federal level has released these reports, you know, through the Biden administration that um, their analysis shows that, you know, the Snake River dams need to be breached in order for <clears throat> salmon recovery to be meaningful in the Columbia River Basin. Uh, this is not the like, hey, these reports are released. And so the Biden administration is going to breach those dams. Um, it's the Biden administration has released these reports. And they've also said that, you know, ongoing regional movement will need need to be like taken into account so it, it's not the like hey now's the time to like take a breath and and not push this hard it's 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 it, the it, time to like push harder it wasn't the release of blackfish right right, right. this right. is overtime guys this right. is the time that we need to like continue to push both regionally and federally that like this hat you know we need to find you know ways to make this happen um 
And and there is there is a catalyst out there like blackfish, and who knows? Maybe it's samnesia. Uh, we yeah. talked about that in a, in a prior episode, and talking about, and and it's something that we're hearing here now um, with with the southern residents who have been in, but they all, uh, as of today, seem to all have left and gone uh, west, possibly back out to the outer coast. But we're hearing a lot of talk of like how many fish are here right now. Wow, there's a lot of Chinook salmon here. All the, the fishermen are saying, you know, they're seeing more fish than we've seen in years. And it goes back to that, what we talked with David about in Samnesia is like, well, is it really a lot of fish or is it a lot of fish for the last five or 10 years? But versus 50 years ago, there's no way it's a lot of fish. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what we have to remember too, is like, as these populations of, of Chinook salmon and, and other salmon too, because other salmon are affected by the dams on, on the snake river and, and other rivers as well, um, is that the body size has changed. So it used to be that, you know, Chinook salmon were 75 to a hundred pounds. Like I, I have photos from the early 1900s of these huge salmon that are bigger than a kid, you know, like, um, and I think now you post that some, yeah, some I'll try to find it photos in the show notes because they are really it's that's another samnesia thing is we don't realize you know we see a a 15 pound chinook and we're like wow that fish is big right but that's generational amnesia right there yeah yeah absolutely and and there are the photos too of like coming into the fish canneries where there's just like you know fish as far as the eye can see and i know at least here in friday harbor from what i've heard and uh, is that sometimes they would bring in so many salmon they couldn't actually process it all and they would just like let these decaying carcasses of salmon go like just think about how that we're taking that we were taking historically right right and we're, so we're gonna have to have a whole episode I think, yeah just just on, on <laughs> just talking salmon. about this because yeah. we could talk about the Elwell River and and I think we should so um maybe we'll like table that for for our next episode. And, but we, and we have been seeing humpbacks. We too. have been seeing humpbacks. I do want to say, yes. um, and I just kind of like lost my train of thought. No, no, that was my fault. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's okay. Um, with the whole, nope, I've lost it. So. Samnesia. Yeah. And the canneries. <laughs> I've lost it. It's oh, okay. It's, it's okay. Gonna, it's going to come back. It'll come back. It'll come back. Um, and just interrupt me if it does. But we did, uh, I mentioned the, the humpbacks because we, we do appreciate all the feedback that we got from our, our last episode about the humpback comeback. And we'd love to hear more feedback from you about this episode. And perhaps uh, if you're interested in a salmon episode or what you might be interested in hearing uh, and learning about, uh, definitely get in touch with us. You can email us at afterthebreachpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can get all of our show notes, uh, including all the photos, on our website, afterthebreachpodcast.com. You can listen to us on iTunes, on Spotify, uh, YouTube, Amazon. Uh, please rate us, give us comments, give us feedback. Uh, we really, really appreciate you joining us. Is it coming back to you yet? It is. It is. It did come back, but awesome. I was like listening go, to you go. talk about this. And um, so I think one of the things that's so important as we're talking about like dam removal, potential dam removal or breaching um, is, you know, that these recreational fishermen like get a lot of heat for, for taking salmon, but you know, hunters and fishers both can be some of the best advocates. Just like, well, it's like we, we're, we're looked at like um, we, you know, are part of the, a big part of the problem and we're not, um, but we're an easy 
target. And I think recreational fishermen are as well. Um, And I think we're both looking at the same goal. We both want more salmon. Like salmon is a key for for all of us. And um, so I think one of the things that maybe the government, maybe other organizations have um, successfully done is kind of pitted the whale community against the fishing community. Um, and I think that's just something we need to like keep in mind. Right. Absolutely. And, and I think that had we managed salmon uh, and not, not just fishing, uh, had we managed commercial fishing and managed preservation of spawning habitat correctly at the beginning of this, then there'd be enough for a healthy, viable commercial fishery, recreational fishery, killer whales, bears, and everybody that we talked about this on the Samnesia episode, there'd be enough for everybody. And so this idea of it's terrible being pit against other interests because everybody has the same interests. And if we do things right, we can rebuild it so that everybody all everybody wins. Everybody wins. And we talked about that in the, the Samnesia episode. Yep. I'm glad you remembered your point. Me too. Uh, it's, you know, one of those days where the brain fog sets in. So, um, but I think this is a really important topic that we should definitely bring up in a future episode or multiple future episodes. Yeah. Um, and we'll find a good uh, guest or maybe a panel and, uh, and, and do a deep dive into, into salmon and salmon recovery. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's been awesome. This episode has been great. It was great talking with Jeff. It was great talking with you, Jeff, too. Oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, um, we would love to have you guys out with us on the water, too, if you're up uh, in the San Juan Islands. Um, and I think we're talking about just a quick little note about doing some um, humpback trips later this fall. We're starting to see some bigger aggregations, uh, groupings of humpbacks that we mentioned on the episode last time with Tasley. Yeah, had the video posted in our show notes. And I hear somebody is going to be running a photography workshop uh, this fall. Maybe. Yeah. We're thinking about it. Uh, September, we're thinking of doing a, a two day photo workshop and also tacking in like photo processing, how to ID whales, you know, that kind of all that fun stuff. Um, chatting with Monica, who was a guest on episode two, um, and, and other stuff. And so, coming out on the water with Sarah and I, yeah, <laughs> that's, 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 that's the highlight. Spending two full days on the water <laughs> with the both of us. So, um, yeah, if anybody's interested in, in that workshop, we would love to have you out. Uh, should be mid September, I think is what we're looking at the 16th and 17th. If my brain fog has not uh, set in is that, two, was it, is it a Saturday, Sunday? It's a Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, you can message us on Instagram at after the breach or email us after the breach podcast at gmail.com uh, or, or get other info, uh, other contact info of our personal Instagrams on our website after the breach podcast.com. But yeah, if, if anybody's interested in the photo workshop, definitely, uh, or, or just coming out on the water yeah, anytime, uh, definitely get in touch with us. Yeah. We'd love to have you out and Thanks for another great episode, Jeff. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, I am too. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget to subscribe and and follow us. Yep. We'll catch you next time, guys. Thanks for joining in. (laughs) 